0: Of all days, to be inspired by true crime, it was a perfect afternoon for fishing. Why not get the kids out of the house and run off some energy while my husband and I toss a line in the water? It was on our way to a new fishing hole we found. On one of those fishing apps that show you on a map where all the fishing spots are nearby. Remind you, we are about 60 miles east of Denver. We travel I-76 frequently, back and forth through the nearby towns on our way to and from Denver. So this particular drive was not anything different. The particular white cross seen from the interstate wasn't new to me either. Hidden by trees, you have to be looking directly at it or you would miss it passing by at 75 miles per hour or 81 as my cruise is always set to. This day, we weren't on the interstate. This fishing hole took us down the frontage road through a town called Kingsburg. I knew as soon as we turned right, headed west on the frontage road, I knew where we would pass by. Our GPS led us right to the intersection where this white cross sits behind some big shade trees which haven't turned green yet. It's about 10 feet from the railroad tracks. I knew exactly whose cross this was. I knew exactly what had happened here, but more so, who was found here. This is the murder of Kenya, Manhe. Kenya Manhey. She was born January 26, 1992, to Maria Lee. I wasn't able to find any detail about Kenya's biological father. However, Kenya was raised by her stepfather Tony Lee since she was 12 years old. Tony and Maria married, and Tony loved and cared for Kenya as his own. Tony and Maria went on to have two children together. Kenya's younger siblings, Kimberly and Anthony. Anthony, years later, in an interview to Dateline, stated, she made everybody happy. Not only was she beautiful to the eye, but she had a beautiful kind heart, even starting up a Sunday school for younger kids at our local church. Once she graduated high school, she enrolled in college and had dreams of a career in broadcasting. She had left the nest and was living with her boyfriend as she worked as a customer service rep. As many underage college kids do, they obtain fake IDs and enjoy the newfound freedom of life on their own. Tony, however, had no knowledge of that side of Kenya. He was unaware she was drinking, partying, and had obtained a fake ID with her friends. Tony, however, found out about this in the worst of ways, when Kenya didn't come home and no one had seen or could reach her. It was April Fool's Day, April 1st, 2011. The family of Kenya so desperately wished the news they would receive would have been a trick. Kenya had gone out with her friends the night before. They were underage drinking at the Club 24K Lounge, which was located in lower downtown Denver. Kenya's friends had not seen her since she was kicked out of the club amidst the night of partying, left to roam the streets of Denver alone wearing a black mini dress and red high heels. She did not have her cell phone. No purse or jacket. All her personal belongings were left inside of the club. So why was Kenya kicked out of the club? Well, according to the club management, Kenya was escorted out for intense intoxication. She, however, didn't leave alone. Another man who was seen with Kenya on the dance floor had also been escorted out alongside her for acting inappropriately together on the dance floor. This all sounded so out of character to Tony. He suspected the possibility of someone slipping something into her drink. The friends inside of the club stated they were all drinking together, not one of them drank more than the other, and her friends were not out of control. Something being slipped into her drink could be a possibility, and another thought I had was Kenya was a very petite girl. She was short and all around just very small. Body mass does come into play when you are consuming alcohol and how you handle your alcohol. Kenya may have drank more than she could handle. Tony immediately took the shocking news to police and filed a missing persons report. He wasn't going to wait around for police to do their job. He now had Kenya's phone her friends had grabbed from inside of the club. He needed to find who the mystery guy Kenya was seen leaving with. Maybe she was still with him, sleeping off the night before. So he searched Kenya's phone top to bottom and came across a strange yet very important text message. The text read, Hey, this is Travis. The guy who gave you a ride last night? White creepy van? Smiley face. Did you get your car home okay? Tony called the phone number repeatedly with no answer and left voicemails hoping for a call back and any clues as to where Kenya could be. While Tony waited for his phone to ring, police discovered video surveillance from the lobby of a nearby apartment building. The video shows Kenya with the mystery guy from the club, waiting in the lobby for an elevator. She was visibly intoxicated, staggering and off balance. Police were able to identify and locate the man Kenya was last seen on video with and interview him about his interaction with Kenya. This mystery man is still a mystery man. I was unable to find his name, however, the apartment complex he was living at was the loft apartment on 24th street. He told investigators Kenya did walk home with him and he had talked her into going up to his loft. Kenya suddenly had a change in judgment and despite him wanting Kenya to stay, she kept saying she had to get back to her friends. His story added up because five minutes later, Kenya is seen exiting the complex alone. She stood outside of the complex, even having a brief interaction with the homeless man loitering for money outside. She then left the camera frame, but was picked up across the street in a hotel lobby using the restroom. Kenya returned back in front of the apartment complex for a short time before walking out of the frame yet again. This time, to never be seen again. It has now been 48 hours since Kenya was last seen, and Tony gets a call. It was the white, creepy van owner, Travis, who had sent her that odd text message. Travis told Tony he saw Kenya stumbling down the sidewalk and offered her a ride home. She accepted. And as they were leaving downtown, Kenya wanted a cigarette. So Travis stopped at a gas station along the way, but it was closed. There was another man, however, standing outside of the gas station, smoking a cigarette. So Kenya got out of the van to bum a cigarette from him. In Travis's words, he said Kenya sat with this man and smoked a cigarette before they ultimately left together into the night. Travis then stated he left as well and went to his girlfriend's house. When Tony asked how he got Kenya's number, he simply responded that he let Kenya borrow his cell phone, took all her own cell phone, hoping one of her friends would answer. However, no one answered. Tony asked Travis to meet at the gas station where he last seen Kenya. Travis agreed. Tony must have had a bad feeling about Travis from the very beginning. He took his 9mm pistol when he left for the gas station. However, when Tony pulled into the parking lot, there were already two police cars waiting for him. Tony's wife, Maria, worried for his safety, had a bad feeling and alerted authorities. They beat Tony to Travis. Travis, or Travis Forbes, was then taken down to the station for questioning, where he provided the investigators the same story he told Tony. They wanted to verify his alibi, so they brought Travis's girlfriend down to the station as well to verify Travis did go to her house that early morning. Carrie Humphrey, who was 23 at the time, corroborated his story and stated, yes, Travis was at her house from 3.30 a.m. to approximately 7 a.m. Travis expressed sympathy and told investigators he wished he wouldn't have left and took her all the way home. He also went into a bit more detail about the mystery gas station guy who supposedly was an Asian male named Dan. Investigators then launched a massive operation to find Kenya and or locate this Dan guy. They began running down any video surveillance that could have caught them. And interviewing people from the club that night and businesses surrounding that gas station. Police didn't have any evidence to hold Travis or any evidence a crime was committed, so they let him go, but were watching him closely. That is when Travis disappeared off the radar. If Travis didn't already raise some red flags, what investigators would find next definitely would. Travis worked at a downtown bakery, which is now named Debbie's Gluten-Free. Travis made his own line of gluten-free granola bars. So investigators went to the bakery to see if they could find Travis or any more answers. They were able to access security footage of the night Kenya went missing. This footage captured Travis wheeling a big white cooler into the bakery freezer. They also discovered that that cooler had been scrubbed clean with bleach. So clean, when investigators took the cooler into evidence and off to the lab, there was only one human cell found on that cooler, which was on the drain plug. Not only was the cooler cleaned, so was the white creepy van. It had been scrubbed down, new carpet, and smelled of bleach as well. Things weren't looking good for Travis. One odd coincidence led to another and soon they would find there were no coincidences at all. Travis remained off the radar until investigators got word Travis was arrested in Austin, Texas for driving a car reported stolen. The owner of this car happened to be an acquaintance of Travis's back in Denver. I am sure Travis was surprised when he got a visit from Denver detectives all the way in Texas with a warrant to collect Travis's DNA. Travis was ultimately extradited back to Colorado. However, this acquaintance whose car had been stolen decided not to press charges, which put investigators in a bind. Without charges, they had to release Travis from custody. Police decided to put a 24 hour surveillance on Travis for a total of two days, hoping he would slip up and lead them to Kenya. Travis didn't lead them to Kenya. And in fact, he didn't do anything suspicious at all. 65 miles north of Denver, a Fort Collins woman was brutally attacked, left for dead in her burning apartment. Her name is Lydia Tillman, 31. Lydia once lived in New York, even traveled to Spain, who loved working with wine. Yes, wine. She had hopes to one day make her own wine. Lydia was a kind heart and very smart. She volunteered in Peru and learned Spanish while awaiting a working visa to make wine in Spain. Lydia's dad had been diagnosed with cancer during this time, and Lydia moved back to Colorado to help take care of him. It was the 4th of July, 2011, when Lydia crossed paths with evil at a firework celebration in downtown Fort Collins. Lydia was walking home to her apartment where she lived alone. Unaware, a stranger was following her. As far as Lydia can remember and piece together, this man pushed her into her apartment. Lydia was brutally attacked, raped, and beaten in her own apartment. She was beaten nearly to death with every intention of killing her. Afterward, dousing her in bleach, and setting the entire apartment on fire before fleeing the scene. Unaware, Lydia was still clinging to life. She found enough strength to jump from her second story apartment window, falling to the concrete below. It was around 4.30 a.m. when residents within the apartment complex recall hearing a muffled scream, heavy footsteps, and a car start and drive away. It was only a short while later heavy banging on their doors alerted them there was a fire in the building. Lydia was found lying outside. Paramedics were called immediately. Lydia's injuries ranged from a broken, shattered jaw to dissection of her carotid artery in her neck from strangulation, which led to her sustaining a massive stroke. Lydia was placed into a medically induced coma. Lydia was unable to speak or tell anyone who had done this to her. What did tell was the DNA collected from underneath her fingernails. The DNA was pushed through the lab immediately. There was a match. That DNA matched Travis Forbes. Yes, the same Travis in suspicion of Kenya's disappearance. Travis was charged with attempted murder, assault, sexual assault, and a list of other charges. He was held in a Weld County Jail. Travis was arrested on July 10th, walking with yet another woman near the CSU campus. He was caught before what could have been a third attack in a matter of three months. Police working on Kenya's case discovered holes in Travis's alibi the night Kenya disappeared. Cell phone records proved Travis was nowhere near or even went to his girlfriend's house that early morning of April 1st. Carrie was charged with lying to the investigators. Providing false information to police is never okay, and in the interview I watched with Carrie, she stated she was scared and did not know what was going on, so she covered for him. I really find it hard to believe she would have covered for him if, in fact, she knew exactly what he was up to. Once Lydia came out of her medically induced coma, she was able to identify her attacker in a lineup, positively identifying Travis Forbes as her attacker. There was an overwhelming amount of evidence piling up for Travis. Ultimately, Travis confessed to both crimes, the disappearance of Kenya and the attack of Lydia. He did so in a plea deal arrangement to avoid the death penalty, which in 2011 in Colorado was still very much on the table. In a police interrogation video with Travis in regards to Kenya, he stated, I did not mean to kill her. I didn't have plans to kill her when I gave her a ride. I didn't pull over to rape her. None of that was in my head. None of that was premeditated. Travis's detailed events of that night was similar to the first lie he told authorities. He seen her stumbling down the street, asked her if she needed a ride. Anya then fell asleep in his van. That is when he had sex with her while she was sleeping. Kenya wakes up and is upset. As she should have been. Travis says she slapped him across the face and he started choking her to death. He then places her small framed body in the cooler in the back of the van, drives back to the bakery where he is caught on surveillance taking the cooler into the freezer. He is even noticeably opening the lid of the cooler and rearranging her body inside, pushing the lid shut that must have kept opening. About three to four hours after a body has been dead, rigor mortis sets in, which causes the muscles and limbs of the body to stiffen. This is due to no oxygen and chemical changes in the muscles. Rigor mortis peaks at about 12 hours post-mortem, but dissipates around 48 hours. This could explain why he had to keep closing the lid of the cooler. After placing Kenya's body in the freezer of the bakery, Travis eventually pulls her back out strips her of her clothing, and washes her with bleach, followed by stripping himself of his clothing and washing himself with bleach as well. He then takes everything out of the van, bleaches the van, and burns everything inside, as well as Kenya and his clothing in a burn barrel. So now investigators learned Kenya was in fact dead, and had been for a hundred days now. Aside from all of the questions they had for Travis, they were mainly concerned with where Kenya's remains were placed. This is when Travis Forbes leads investigators east, outside of that small town of Kingsburg, off County Road 53 and I-76. Travis instructs investigators. She is down there by the trees, all while Travis is screaming and sobbing, being back to the scene of this horrific act. Travis addressed an officer and stated, you're standing right on top of her. She's about five feet down. Well, you are going to have to join me for part two to find out what happens next. I did take a break last week from uploading. I had this case planned for last week. However, life happened as it tends to do. I imagine the majority of you can somewhat relate to how stressful things have been amidst the stay-at-home order, the virus affecting our jobs and children's schools, I have been working my full time job, my real estate job, remotely from home, homeschooling my first grader, as well as continuing education for my preschooler. It's been a roller coaster to say the least. I am thankful for my health, my family's health, and my job and resources available to me. With that being said, I have thought long and hard about balancing my job, kids, husband, running a household, and this podcast. So I'm going to be changing my upload schedule to bi-weekly, two episodes a month every other week. This helps me prepare, provide longer episodes and better quality. I have, however, set up a Patreon account, which is $3 a month, but will include an extra exclusive episode each month, as well as access to a private Facebook group where I will post additional content giveaways, and give you sneak peek previews before anyone else. This Patreon is a way to show your support for my show. I'm trying to adjust myself into treating this as my second job, which it essentially has been. It takes a lot of investment into equipment, and it takes a lot of time and effort to research, record, and edit each episode. So I appreciate any support. You will find links in the show notes, but you can find me on the app or patreon.com. Just search Pocketful of Crime. If you were not able to become a Patreon, I have made a Facebook group. You can find it by searching Pocketful of Crime Podcast Sleuth Group. This will be a great place for all of you to interact with each other, share any cases you find interesting any new evidence or findings in previous cases I've covered, some behind-the-scenes action, as well as live video chats. So be sure to check that group out. I'm excited to have a place for all of my listeners to come together. As always, I have to add the disclaimer. Be kind. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. If you can't refrain from saying those things, leave the group. If not, you will be removed and blocked. I wouldn't think my sweet listeners would do such things, but sometimes one slips through. Links will be added in the show notes. I wanted to share a joke a listener shared with me. What do you call a chubby psychic? A fortune teller. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I hope you are well, healthy, and wearing a smile. Join me for part two. Be sure to set that notification to be alerted of my newest episode. Until next time, stay weird, my friends. Oh, and one more thing. Hi, mom.